When I think about it now, people would really get excited about someone fracturing their skull like that, a child. But we were way out at Howell with no way to get into the doctor, so Mother just put me to bed and kept a cold pack on my head. And in about a week, she let me go back to school. And with I had a lump on my forehead, but that's healed up and... Gradually, it, the scar has faded away, but I still have the white scar on my forehead from that. <clears throat> About the time I was in the seventh grade, the IQ test was invented, and it was given to all the schools to try it out on the students. Well, I was in seventh grade and was probably just uh, under uh, or over 12 years old when I took it. And uh, all, of the, all of the students in the seventh grade had, seventh and eighth grades had to take it. I don't know whether they used it on the smaller kids or not. But we kids in the seventh and eighth grade all took the test. And I didn't think it was anything. They said we had to be careful and be sure that we knew the answer in every answer, in to every question before we answered it. And I didn't think it was any super-duper Test. Some of the kids were scowling and frowning and kicking the sides of their desks, but I went ahead and answered it as good as I could and tried to get through, and I was one of the first ones through. Well, we didn't know. They took, it, took the tests into Brigham to score them, and we didn't know for a while how we came out on the test because it was so new around and finally the scores were released and uh, Corinne had scored very high on it. In fact, one of the students in Corinne had scored the highest test in the county and everybody wondered who it was but nobody knew. They wouldn't tell anybody. They said that wasn't supposed to be known. This was just a test to test you how you're in how high your intelligence was. Well, it went on some time. And finally, I heard a couple of the teachers talking about it, and I overheard them, what they were saying, and it turned out that I was the one who had scored the 138, and that was the highest score in the county in the IQ test. So I was quite proud of it, but at least it was a start. When I started to high school, we didn't have school buses like they have now. Uh, they used to pay the students so much a day to hire somebody, their parents, or pay for the gasoline to take them to school. And uh, we took the money and paid it to whoever was driving us would take a load of us to school in their automobiles. But finally, uh, about the second year I went to high school, uh, one of the men from town in Corinne had a, a pickup truck with, that he hauled chickens and pigs and all kinds of stuff in.
in the summertime it had chicken wire on the sides of it and was closed on the back and they hired the school board hired him to haul the kids to high school they weren't as strict about students going to school after they finished the eighth grade which was all eighth grades were in Korean and you went to high school if you wanted to you did, you weren't forced to go and so that pickup truck hauled all the kids from <laughs> Korean that wanted to go to high school and we used to sit there were two planks down each side of the box in the back and we sat on the planks and when it got cold we used to put our feet up in between the, the kids on the opposite side and then we'd wrap quilts around our legs to keep us warm because it was so cold there was no way of heating the place they did put some canvas sides on it over the sides to keep the wind out in the winter time my high school days worked pretty well uh, we went to school and uh, had to have our lunch to either take our lunch or buy our lunch at the cafeteria and then they encouraged the school encouraged everyone to buy their lunch at the cafeteria that was uh, cooked for by the cooking students in the school the, sec the second year cooking students and the school lunch cost 25 cents apiece and I was so skinny all the time and so far underweight that my parents decided the best they could do for me was thing they could do was to get me to take a hot lunch at noon so they pinched and saved and gave me a quarter to take my lunch buy my lunch every year it's every day at school and uh, I knew that they didn't have the money and that it was really making it hard for them and if I needed a, needed new pencils or notebooks or any payment for anything at school I <laughs> just didn't eat lunch those days and saved my quarters up until I had enough to buy me <laughs> what I needed things were tough there just wasn't any money and everyone was in the same box Everyone who had at least a little room in their backyard had a pig pen with a pig or two in it, and they would try to have a few chickens in a small little box-like chicken coop or so. Sometimes they'd had have a bigger chicken coop and had a dozen or two chickens, and then they would take the eggs, eggs and trade them for groceries at the grocery store. And... Uh, we we really didn't have any money. Everybody raised their own garden, and their, the pig pen and the chickens furnished meat. And if you had room, you had a cow, which furnished milk and cream and the butter and uh, cottage cheese for the family. So everybody ate, whether they had much money or not. But everybody was about the same, so no one felt deprived and uh, we'd go along and make our clothes go as long as they could and, and put cardboard in the bottom of our shoes to make our shoes last a little bit longer and while I was in high school the last two years I made it to the debating team 
And I remember the last year that I was a senior, I was on the senior debating team, and they would take us around to different high schools. And one day we had to go down to Ogden to the high school, and uh, I had, I didn't, I needed a dress so bad, but I didn't have a dress and there was no money to buy one. So uh, we looked, Mother and I checked my clothes, and I had a sweater that came down to my hips. It was kind of a dressy little sweater. And I then I found a summer dress I'd had. The top was worn out, but the skirt was still pretty good. And we sewed the skirt onto the bottom of the sweater. And that was my dress that I wore to Ogden High School to be on the debating team. No one made a remark about it at all, and I didn't say anything. I don't think anyone even noticed. My senior, uh, senior year in high school, Grandma and Grandpa Wood lived in Brigham, and we were welcome to come there and stay any time we wanted, and I got a job that was working as a hat apprentice, milliner apprentice, and I didn't get any pay for it, but they let me work in the store and help customers when they came in. And then I sat in, part of the time, I sat in the back and sewed uh, headbands and linings and helped trim the hats and did anything after school to keep it going. So I worked in the hat store and stayed with Grandma Wood in Brigham during my last year in high school. When it came time for graduation, uh, I had scrounged up a little bit of money uh, and uh, saved it from uh, my lunch money, so I bought some material and I made my own graduation dress. And it wasn't too bad. I didn't think I felt right proud of it to wear it to graduation. For uh, when I graduated from the eighth grade, before we started high school, each school had to put on a number on the program, on the graduation program that was held in the Brigham City Tabernacle. And uh, they had kids giving recitations and singing songs and everything. But for Korean, they asked Lapriel Marble and myself, who both played the piano, if we would play a duet to represent the Korean school at the eighth grade graduation. So we did. We got together and fixed our hair just exactly alike with a braid that went down our back and, <laughs> and then had two curls hanging out the back of our hair. I remember that. <laughs> and we played, to represent Korean, we played a piano duet in the Brigham City Tabernacle. I've forgotten to say about what happened the year I was 10 years old. That was in 1918 when the influenza was so bad. Uh, the schools were closed and we had been living out to Howell, but we decided, the folks decided to move into Corinne. We moved in in the fall and there was no place we could rent except a part of a building that belonged to the Odd Fellows Lodge, and it was a great big long room. But Dad put up a big canvas curtain in the middle of it so that we only had to heat uh, 
part of this room, and we lived and slept and lived right there in that room. During the winter, the middle of the winter, I think it was in January, and over Christmas and in January when the flu was so bad, we all started to come down with the flu. And Lenora got it first, she was a baby, and then the mother got it, taking from taking care of Lenora, I guess, and then I got it, and then Dad came down with it, and we were all, the whole family was down with the flu in bed, and it was a bad one. We were quarantined, no one could come in to help us, no one wanted to because they didn't want to get the flu either. And uh, the only one that didn't get it was Bud, and he was eight years old. And Bud was the one who did our uh, hauling in the coal and, and carrying out the ashes and emptying the slop jars from us. And when we'd vomit and that in the wash basins, he'd take the wash basins out and empty them and clean them out with snow. But he was eight years old, and he took care of the whole family. Finally, the bishop's wife, uh, Sister Jensen, she was, Alma Jensen's wife, came when Dad and, and Mother were both so bad, and I was quite bad. I was wandering around in my sleep and <laughs> wandering, walking around and when I didn't know what I was doing. And, that, and Sister Jensen came and stayed with us for four or five days until... Dad and Mother got to feeling a little bit better, and I remember how kind she was and how hard she worked to take care of us and keep us warm and keep us fed. But we pulled through it okay, thanks to Bud and his care for being the <laughs> man who took care of all the nasty things in the family. After I graduated from high school, <clears throat> I was home for the summer, and Dr. Mahana was our doctor in Brigham City. He was a fairly young fellow and had two children, a little boy and a girl, neither one of them big enough to go to school. One, the little boy was, he couldn't walk yet, and the little girl was about two years older. And uh, one day when he... Uh, came out to see mother and I was doing up the dishes and cleaning up the place and he said "Did to me, did you ever think of working out and doing housework for anybody? And I said no, I've had too much to do here and he said, well, my wife's looking for a girl to help her with the housework. I'll talk to your folks about it. So he talked to the folks and they said, well, it was a chance for me. I was out of high school, and I really needed a job of some kind to furnish me with some clothes and things. And he promised me $10 a week if I would come and live with them and take, do the housework and take care of the two little children that they had. So that's where I went. I went to Brigham and worked for Dr. and Mrs. Mahana at their home. The hardest thing I had to do was learning to answer the telephone for the doctor because people would call there and want to talk to him and I had quite a time learning exactly what to say and how to say it and, and uh, how to satisfy people on the telephone. Uh, 
I worked there for uh, all summer long from the time uh, school was out until uh, early in the fall. And then Hope Reader, who was a good friend that I had had all my life, uh, she was the same age as I was, and she had deformed hands. One hand had just three little claws on it and was quite short, one arm. And the other one was of average length, but it had the last three fingers on her hand all met in one nail. They, it just had one nail for the three fingers. They all came together. And she, I felt so sorry for her, and she was a nice girl. And so we became very good friends. Well, she was coming, we graduated from high school at the same time, and she was coming to Logan to start college over here. And uh, she said, why don't you come with me? And I said, I can't go to college. I haven't got any money. And uh, I said, all the money I've got is what I earn is here working for Dr. Mahana. And she said, listen, would you like to be a nurse? And I said, I don't know why. And she said, well, there's a, a nurse's training school in Logan. And once, if you're there, you're accepted there, they furnish your room and board and pay you a little bit each month. And I looked into it, and sure enough, she was right. So with Dr. Mahana's help and recommendation, I got into the Budge Hospital Nursing School. And the first three months, we weren't paid anything. We were probies, they call probationers, they call and uh, to see if we wanted to stay. After the three months was up, then they paid us $9 a month the first year. The second year, we got $10 a month, and the third year, we got $11 a month. And, of course, our room and board was furnished, and we lived right there in the hospital. We had some a part of the hospital that was separated from the main hospital rooms, and that was the nurse's home, and that's where we lived. It was right in with the hospital. And so I went in training at the Budge Hospital. And I quite enjoyed it. I didn't mind it a bit. But uh, I was such a skinny little piece, I didn't even weigh 100. I think I weighed 90 pounds when I started training. And one of the doctors, after I, I bought my uniforms with the money that I saved from working for Dr. Mahana, and uh, when... I was dressed up in my uniform with my blue and white striped dress with a big white apron, and they came down nearly to our ankles, these big white starched aprons with a bib that came up in front and then crossed over in the back and buttoned to our belt. And the aprons on the, the uniform went all the way around us. They were full white like full white skirts and then we wore black shoes black slippers and stockings and we had to keep our shoes polished but anyway I was so skinny and <laughs> one of the doctors saw me in the hall and he said what are to he said to the chief doctor there Dr. D.C. Budge when did you start taking in kids to feed them to keep them from looking like they're starved to death. <laughs> and 
<laughs> Dr. D.C. laughed, and he said, don't worry about her. She's working out all right. And he said, she's turning out to be a pretty good nurse. So I had a special spot in my heart for Dr. D.C. Budge. I had just finished my probationary period, and uh, it was the four part of January, about the first week in January. And after we finished our probationary period, we were put on call, we called it, to go out with the doctors. And uh, when they went to homes to on confinement cases, so many mothers had their babies at home. There weren't very many that came to the hospital. But we had to, when the doctor would call into the hospital and say he needed a nurse, and the superintendent would come and tell us, as we took our turns, would tell us that we were to go and to go get the doctor's bag, which we were all kept in a closet down by the hospital office, and get our coats or whatever we needed for the weather, and go stand by the front door and watch for the doctor to come. The doctor would drive up to the front door and and then we'd run out with the bag and get in the car and go on the confinement case with him. Well, this was in January, when, and I had just been put on call to go on confinement cases. I'd never been on one. But this night, it was in the middle of the—I had gone to bed and was asleep, and it was about 10 o'clock, 10.30. And the superintendent, night superintendent, came down to the nurse's home and woke me up and said, uh, Cutler, you are to go with Dr. McGee on a confinement case. You'd better hurry and get dressed. So I jumped out of bed and got dressed and went up through the halls to the hospital and down to the office, the front office, and got the doctor's bag and stood by the door. And when Dr. McGee drove up, I took the bag and went out and got in the car. And he, he said, do you know where we're going tonight? And I said, no. And he said, we're going out to Newton. Do you know where Newton is? And I said, no, nope, never been there. And he says, well, you'll find out tonight. And this was about the first week in January, and the snow was especially deep that winter. And he said, now... Uh, You'll have to do a lot of things that the nurses don't regularly do. He says, because I've got a broken leg, and he did. He had broken his leg about a month before, and he was going around taking care of his patients with a full-length cast on one leg. It was broken somewhere around the knee, so he had to have the cast on the full length of his leg. But anyway, we headed for Newton, and the snow was way up was deep two feet or more on the level and uh, it was deeper than that where it had piled up along the roads now they didn't have the road equipment then to keep the roads cleaned off like they do now but anyway we followed a couple of tracks in the snow and came to Smithfield and then turned west and came to Newton and uh, the car skidded around in the snow a little bit, but Dr. McGee handled it very well. He was a little sharp fellow. He wasn't, he was only about five foot two or three tall, but he had the nicest disposition and everyone just loved him. And uh, he wasn't very heavy, but gee, he was a nice person. 
And so when we came, he says, now this is Newton. And boy, I looked out the window of the car and the snow was piled up. There weren't, uh, it was getting close to midnight by now. And the snow was piled up all over and you could hardly see a trail to get into a place. And I thought, oh dear. But anyway, we went through Newton and out on the west southwest corner of Newton. And uh, before he stopped the car, he said, now this place we're going to, she has had three or four boys. And he says, uh, they're hoping for a girl this time. But he says, I hope they get it. He said, she was in training, but she quit and got married before she finished. He says, she's quite a person, and he says, you'll find everything spotless and in perfectly good order, ready for you to go to work. This is a good place to go for your first time. So we got out of the car, and he said, I'll go ahead and break a trail for you through the snow with my cast, drag my cast through the snow and make a trail for you and but he says I can't carry the bag because the cast is too heavy for me to carry that and, <laughs> and wade through the snow too he says so if you can come through the snow and carry the bag for me he says I'll break a trail so he's we got out of the car and started out and he said by the way there's a deep ditch here and in the irrigation ditch, and he said, but they've got a bridge across it. And he said, be sure you stay on the bridge, because that ditch is deep, and it's full of snow right up to the level of the rest of the snow around here. So he went across the bridge, and he said, I'll see if I can find the bridge. So he went across the bridge, and it was a board about eight inches wide. <laughs> he scooped the snow off, and started, went over the bridge, dragging his cast through the snow and hobbling on his crutches. And I went behind him, and as I got on the bridge, somehow my foot slipped and I went head first down into this ditch, and it was clear full of snow. The snow was about, <laughs> the ditch was two or three feet deep, and it was full of snow up plus the couple of extra feet of snow on the top. <laughs> Boy, I went in right up head first, right up to my shoe tops. <laughs> he stopped and looked around. He said, are you all right? Are you hurt? And I got, spit the snow out of my mouth and said, no, I'm all right. I'll have, I can get out. So I clambered out and shook the snow out of my clothes and everything and grabbed his bag and went after him. And we got in the house and it was to Parley and Ella Peterson's home. And he was right. She had, it was midnight now, and he had, she had everything ready for us, and everything was so neat and clean. But, uh, so we went ahead, and, and uh, after a while, she was delivered of the baby, and I took the baby out to the kitchen table and from the bedroom and cleaned it and dressed it and put drops in its eyes and dressed the navel like you were supposed to and, and then dressed the baby and took it back into the mother and got everything cleaned up and we got her bed changed and everything ready and we were ready to leave and Dr. McGee said, come here, I want to show you something. And there was one door or a double door affair that opened off this large kitchen and it had 
some curtains hanging over it. But he went over to the curtains and pulled them to one side and switched on a light, and there was a bed in that room, and there were four boys, four little boys, from two years on up to about eight, sleeping crossways in that bed, and all in the one bed. And when he switched on the light, all four of them sat up at once. <laughs> they rubbed their eyes and said, What is it? What is it? And Dr. McGee said, You boys are the luckiest boys in the world. You've got the sweetest, prettiest little sister I have ever seen. My, she's a nice baby. And the boys looked at each other, and then they looked at Dr. McGee, and one of the boys said, Girls are no good, and they pulled the quilts up over their head and flopped back down on the bed as quick as they could. And that was my introduction to Newton. I never dreamed that I would spend the rest of my life here, but I did. I need to go back to 1918 when we lived in the house in Corinne where we had the flu. Uh, there was a wire, barbed wire fence between our lot and the house on the next lot. And here the Ira Packer family lived. And they were uh, along about the same age as my parents. And they had uh, two girls who were, uh, their oldest children were two girls. One was about... 15 months older than I was, and the other one was about 15 months younger, Verna and Opal Packer. And then they had a boy who was the same age as my younger brother, Ransom, or Bud, and his name was Ronald. And then they had some other smaller children that I don't remember right now. But they lived just over this barbed wire fence, and we used to play together all the time. And Mrs. Mr. and Mrs. Packer were two of the nicest, sweetest people I have ever known. They, I never remember of them being out of patience with their children or scolding them. And their children be, behaved very well. And uh, they, we used to play to their house, and they'd come over and play with us in our funny house with the one wall made out of canvas. And... Uh, but about the time that we left Corinne, we left there, uh, Packers moved to Brigham. And it was there in Brigham a year or so after that their son, Boyd K. Packer, who is now head of the Council of the Twelve in the church and may someday even be our prophet, but he was born. And he looks so much like his father. Every time I see him on TV or something, I think about Ira Packer, his father, and what a fine person he was. Uh, in the spring, after we had lived in this place all winter in the spring, someone had told Dad that there was a lot of good land to be bought quite cheap up in Oregon. And he decided to go up and take a look. So we had a car by then, but it didn't. It was a car that uh, Ford, but it didn't have any sides on it. It just had side curtains. But Dad fixed it up so that there was uh, two levels of 
beds could be made in the car with some pipes that he put up and so that he and mother and we three kids uh, could sleep in the car with them. We, Bud and I and Lenora slept in the seats and dad and mother slept on the canvas cot up on these pipes that was built up close to the top ceiling in the car. And uh, <clears throat> so we traveled to Oregon. We went up through Idaho and over into Bend, Oregon, which is about the middle of Oregon, and then we went north up to the high to uh, the uh, state line and down the Columbia River to Portland. And then instead of going on to the coast, we cut down through uh, there to uh, the capital of Oregon, which is. Um, can't remember right now, but anyway, and on the way, while we were down there in about the middle of Oregon, we found a place that was for sale, and it looked like a pretty good place. So we stopped and talked to the people, and they said, well, why don't you stay a day or two and look at it and, and think it over? So we stopped there, and we were going to camp. It had a beautiful backyard with a lot of trees and grass and everything. It was in quite a, a hilly, uh, it was up against the mountains, but there were a lot of trees and, and wild brushing around. And uh, we were going to camp in the car like we'd always done, and this lady said, well, that's ridiculous. We've got this house that has more rooms than we'll need. She says, we don't use these all these rooms. Why don't you come and camp in one of these rooms? and stay with us in here. So we, they talked us into it, and so mother and dad, they said, well, it looks like it might storm. You better come inside. So we went in this one room. It was on the first floor with their other house, and it was evidently a dining room affair. And it had a buffet, and when we went in there to take our bedding in and make a bed. We, Dad said, well, we'd sleep on the floor. We didn't want to bother their beds or bedding or anything. And uh, we made beds out, two bed, a bed for Dad and Mother, and then a bed for we three kids on the floor. And the buffet, when we went in to go to bed, the bottom drawer on the buffet was pulled open about three inches. And I went over and went to shove it in, and Mother said, don't touch it. She said, I don't want any of you to touch that drawer. Just leave it like it is. They know that drawer was open when we came in here. Now, we're not going to touch it. And so we didn't. We left it that way. And the next morning we got up and, and uh, Dad said, now let's all have, we'll have family prayer here. So we all knelt down on the beds on the floor and we had a family prayer, and he prayed for wisdom to know whether we should stay there and buy that farm or not. And uh, then we got up, and this lady was up already, and she had breakfast going for us, a big kettle of mush and some breakfast for us. And they, the, the fellow said he'd take Dad out and show him the land, and Mother could help us help gather up the bedding and straighten things up. So we did, and finally... Dad came back in and he said, Mother looked at him and said, Well, what have you decided? And he said, I think we'd better go back home. 
And she said, well, all right. So we gathered up and loaded up in the car, in the Ford, all of us, and the bedding and everything, and headed for home. And on the way home, after we got out and started down the road, why, Mother said, what made you change your mind? And he said, you know, we prayed last night for guidance. And he said, when I woke up this morning, that song, Come to Zion, Come to Zion, kept ringing in my ears. And he said, I couldn't get it out of my brain. He said, I went out with that man and looked the place over, and it just sounded louder than ever in my ears. He said, I think we'd better go home. When I see the young people nowadays and they have to drive here and drive there and that, I think they don't know what real fun is. We used to have so much fun. Uh, every Friday night there was a dance in Korean. And uh, when I was growing up there, and everybody went to the dances, especially the young people. And that was just something you, you all went to the dances. And they were very well attended. and very well chaperoned and taken care of. Uh, that was during the time that prohibition was in effect and nobody, but nobody ever showed up to those dances who was drunk. Sometimes some of the fellows would uh, sneak a little bit of the uh, moonshine, they called it, their homemade liquor, but uh, they never went to the dances and when they were drunk. We didn't have anything like that. And in the winter, <clears throat> they would hitch up horses, a team of horses, onto a bobsleigh and we'd all go sleigh riding. The, some of the, the gang of young people, the crowd of young people that I kind of ran with, uh, some of the boys lived out west of Corinne about five miles and they would hitch on some, in the winter they would hitch up a team of horses and bring a bobsleigh in and gather up the girls and boys along the way and pick us up because we lived about a mile out of Corinne there. And by the time we got into the dances, we had a sleigh full and then we'd have a good time going home singing and, and sliding along in that sleigh. My, that was a lot of fun. No, it is. I graduated from the hospital in the fall of 1931 and uh, it was in the bottom of the depression and work was very hard to get. The hospital promised us that when we graduated they would give each one of us a job as a private duty nurse on one case and then after that we were on our own. So they gave me a a job is uh, on one case, and it was a, a lady or a girl from uh, Bear Lake, and she was in the hospital for three weeks, and so I managed to make pretty good on that case, and that money that I made on that case helped me until is what I lived on until I got a job at the Brigham City Hospital down in Brigham, and. Uh, that was uh, a job working for Dr. Purse, the man who had <laughs> been there when I was born. It was his hospital. And we, uh, there was only one nurse on duty there, 
and you worked 24 hours a day. You were on duty 24 hours a day. It, at night, you slept on a little canvas cot out in the hall under the call board that made a buzzy noise when somebody, a patient turned on their light. And that's, uh, we didn't, un I didn't undress, I just uh, loosened my belt on my uniform and took off my shoes and slept in my clothes and get up and answer the, the lights. If we had two or more patients, then they would hire someone to go on night duty and take care of the patients during the night while I, so I could get some rest and take care of them during the day. But that was a terrible winter. The snow was so deep, and uh, the sidewalks in Brigham, they uh, scooped out the sidewalks so people could use the sidewalks, and you walked along in a kind of a ditch with the snow up to your hips on each side. Uh, along in the spring, after I'd been there all winter, and that in the spring, uh, we had a hit a space where there were no patients there, and uh, the lady who owned the hospital she said, "If you want to take a few weeks off and have a vacation, here's a good time to do it." And I thought, well, <laughs> might be all right. And my aunt Ida and her husband and two children lived down in. Brawley, California, which is just a few miles from the Mexican line down uh, in Southern California. So I thought, well, I'd, she had said her last trip home, she'd said, somebody come down and see us when you have time. And so I sent her a letter and told her I'd be down and uh, I sent my letter a week ahead so she'd have plenty of time to get it. So I just in case, I packed a uniform and, and some white shoes and stockings and a cap with me when I went down there. Well, when I got down there, she hadn't got the letter yet. <laughs> I had a dickens of a time finding where she lived and all about it. But anyway, we finally got together. And, and uh, after we'd be, I'd been there for a couple of days, she said, why don't you find see if you can find a job here? And... Uh, I did. I got a job as an office nurse for a Dr. Conover, who was a an eye, ear, nose, and throat specialist, and for Dr. Thompson, who was a, a dentist, but he did he did special dental work. They called him an orthodontist, and <coughs> Dr. Thompson, it was there was such a hard time to make a living out of anything, and he said he couldn't afford a nurse there. But Dr. Conover said he needed one, and he needed someone that could help him in surgery and that. And so Dr. Conover was the one who hired me, and I enjoyed working for them. Dr. Thompson said if I wanted to help him, he would help me with any dental, do any dental work I needed, and my teeth were quite prominent in the front, and he said, I'll uh, pull your teeth back and fix you up a good-looking set of teeth if you want. So that's what he did, and I worked for him for work on my teeth. Uh, 
that worked all right for the rest of that, that summer, but oh, it was hot there. And uh, air conditioning wasn't even known in those t days, but we fixed up a, an egg crate with uh, little strips of canvas hanging down from wires stretched across the top of it, and then put a couple of drippers, big drippers, and filled them with water and let these little strips of canvas hang down into the drippers and then put an electric fan behind the thing that blew air through it and that made the air conditioner and oh what a difference that made in the office. But when you opened the door and went out it would be 105 and 110 some, as it got hotter into the summer it sometimes it was up to 115 and you'd feel like you were just walking into an oven. So, but I worked there all summer, and then in the fall, uh, they, Dr. Thompson and Dr. Conaward, decided they would move over to San Diego, which was out on the coast and was a much nicer place to live. It had, uh, it was cool the year round and had nice weather the year round. So they moved over there. They got a chance to go into a clinic that was over there. And then they sent me word that if I wanted to come over, I could have a job running a little hospital that was connected with the clinic, just two or three patients at a time. So I thought, well, just as well try it and see what it's like. So I moved over to San Diego and ran this little hospital in connection with this small clinic over there. Uh, I got sick during the winter and was quite sick, but... I needed some help there, and all I was all alone doing the cooking and the taking care of the patients 24 hours a day. And I wrote up to Logan, to a girl who had graduated when I did from training, and asked her if she wanted to come down and take a chance on helping me. I said, I'll pay you a dollar a day and see that you get paid whether I get anything or not because what I get is what I make from the patients that are in this little one-horse hospital. But so she came down and between the two of us we ran this little hospital. And then I got sick and she uh, wrote up to Grant and told him that I was sick and so but he came down.